The Eco Right Speaks podcast is your conservative home for weekly climate news, interviews, points of view, climate heroes, jesters, and so much more. We'll share the stories of people leading in their local communities and around the country. Welcome to the Eco Right Speaks podcast. It's brought to you by RepublicEN.org. Hello and welcome to the Eco Right Speaks, your climate-focused podcast produced by the team at RepublicEN.org. I'm your host, Chelsea Henderson, and today marks our 15th episode of season two, our 41st episode overall. I'm so proud that we have come this far. Seriously, we didn't know if we'd make it to episode five. And it's an understatement to say we wouldn't be here without you, our listeners. So thank you. This week, we're mixing things up a bit and featuring two guests, both coming from some aspect of academia. Dorian Abbott is an associate professor at the University of Chicago in the Department of Geophysical Sciences. Dorian uses mathematical and computational models to understand and explain fundamental problems in earth and planetary sciences. He has worked on problems related to climate, paleoclimate, the cryosphere, planetary habitability, which I am very keen on, and exoplanets. And according to his bio, he is always excited to think about new things and works best with students who have strong mathematical skills that they want to apply to cool problems. Listeners, just a note to say I'm embarrassed at my um, very, very dusty mathematical skills. Back in high school, I was really good at math, so good I didn't have to take it in college, and it all went downhill from there. Our second guest on the episode is Alexis Pescaris, a Michigan native with a specific interest in the renewable energy transition, sustainable land use, and agrovoltaic system development. She recently earned her master's degree in environmental and energy policy from Michigan Technical, uh, Technological University. During her time at Michigan Tech, Alexis was among the first group of students to attend the 2019 United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change Conference of the Parties, where she observed the climate change negotiations and presented her research on the links between sustainable development and climate action. Alexis's graduate research was funded by the U.S. Department of Energy Solar um, of U.S. Department of Energy Solar Energy Technology Office. As a research associate of Michigan's Tech Open Sustainability Technology Lab, she has been investigating agrivoltaic technology from a social sciences perspective to identify opportunities for and barriers to diffusion. Alexis gives us agrivoltaics 101, in case that's a new term for you, and it was super enlightening talking to her. So first, my conversation with Dorian Abbott. Welcome back. We have, as promised, our third scientist on the podcast, Dorian Abbott. Welcome to the show, Dorian. So nice to have you here. Thank you. So I teach a course on global warming, a big core course for non-scientists. And we usually have 300 to 400 students twice a year. And then in the summer, we have a small version with like 30 students. So we're doing, you know, let's say seven or 800 students per year. And it's for students who have to fulfill a physical science requirement if their major is economics, history, poetry, stuff like that. And as part of this course, I've been teaching maybe two or three years, I've been trying to sort of develop arguments 
about global warming that the students can use to actually try to convince people. So most of the course is physical science-based, but you know, the last few times we talk about kind of the policy implications, the last few classes. And so, you know, I try to tell them, let's uh, if you want to convince someone, writing a bunch of mean things on social media is not a good strategy. Calling them stupid is not a good strategy. Uh, but instead, try to understand their motivations and what's important to them and construct an argument based on that. And I happen to not be a, a particularly political person. But to the extent that I am political, I'm, I, I like to be sort of common sense, I guess you would say, practical, try to figure out policies that will work rather than uh, subscribe to ideologies that one party or another wants to push. And so I thought I could construct a good argument for that would be convincing to conservatives. And so I called it conservation is conservative. And I wrote a little article for the for their journal. And so I went through, first of all, I just gave a brief summary of what I think is the most convincing, are the most convincing aspects of the scientific case that global warming is happening and is caused by humans and is something that we should actually deal with. I noted that Pope Francis, Patriarch Bartholomew, Orthodox Patriarch, and the late Chief Rabbi Sachs have all affirmed that there's a strong theological justification for environmental concentration. And so that's biblical and based on the tradition. And it, it comes down to us being God's stewards of earth and our duty to love our neighbor and to care for the poor. And then traditional conservatives, I pointed out that Edmund Burke's argument, conservative argument against the French Revolution was that society is this complex system that we don't fully understand. And it's been generated by the wisdom of our betters, many generations over thousands of years. And it's extremely hubristic to think that you can come up with the best, uh, a better system than what's, than what's developed over the years and then just implement it with no problems. And uh, that was his basic argument against the French Revolution. And a very analogous argument can be made to a traditional conservative concerning global warming, because global warming, uh, the global environment has developed, let's say, over 10,000 years since the last ice age, since the maximum of the last ice age, the Holocene is the period we call it. And it's been a stable system for 10,000 years. And if we just start changing it willy nilly, wouldn't you think that bad things are going to happen? So like a hurricane or a category five hurricane through a major U.S. city? No, much bigger events. So what I'm talking about is uh, let's say that a given amount of CO2, let's say we double CO2 and let's say we have a 90% uh, with the 90% confidence, we can say that the global mean temperature will increase between two degrees and five degrees. Mm -hmm. I'm making those numbers up. There might be a 1% chance that the global mean temperature will increase by 10 degrees. So we're not talking about one hurricane coming through Miami. We're talking about a major, major problem. Like, you know, there's the difference. So we, we have the capacity to multiply CO to do at least three or four doublings of CO2. Okay. So if you had really had 10 degrees per doubling, 
you're talking about like 30 or 40 degrees warming. I mean, just a cuckoo amount of warming. You'd be really screwed. (laughs) Yeah. And so that, that probability, if this were a normal distribution, it might be one in uh, a trillion, but maybe it's 1%. And just that difference, that small difference, because the uh, cost of the event is so high, even though it's a low probability, an increase in that low probability totally torques the cost-benefit analysis and makes it rational to okay. do something about it. And so that's the argument I made for sort of business leaders. Now, that's an argument that works for a large business that expects to be uh, operating for decades. Mm-hmm. So l- large international CEO types, that's the sort of argument that might appeal to them. Which we will definitely, if you can um, provide me a link, I will link sure. that our listeners so anyone that wants to go back and and take a read i mean i think that's really fascinating and you know this is what we do at republic en is that we um look at how you know bob's bob inglis our executive director is um you know very good at hearing what people are saying and kind of meeting them where they are and when you were starting off, um, when we started off this conversation, you said, you know, how do you talk to somebody who doesn't believe in global warming? You don't insult them. You don't tell them they're stupid. And I think those are some really basic but key elements, right? You can't make somebody feel like they're dumb. No, People aren't going to be responsive and want to keep listening to you if you make them feel bad about themselves. So how do you how do you do structure when you have a class that has that many students? Is yeah, it this is a flip, this is a flipped class. Uh-huh. In the spring, this spring quarter, there are thirteen graduate student instructors. Oh wow! And they each lead a class of thirty. I I prepare the notes. The students read one to two pages of notes before every class. Then the instructors give a mini lecture. To the students 10 minutes they work in groups of three for 30 minutes on problems that i prepared then the instructors give the answer for 30 minutes there are five quizzes throughout the quarter and for each quiz i have an hour and a half session the day before to help the students with any questions they have and also go through a practice quiz i give them an hour and a half and a half session the day after and that's all on zoom so any and all of them could come if they wanted so it's broken up so that they're working, most of the stuff they're working on is in groups of three. And this flipped method has been demonstrated to be vastly more effective than traditional lectures. And uh, we've seen since adopting this method, major improvements in the retention of knowledge among the students. I mean, I went to college a really long time ago, but I do recall that I had a class that had about 400 students and it met in this big lecture hall and there were technically TAs in the class, but we never met with them. All they did was help grade the papers and there were two tests a year. That was it, yeah. or a quarter or a semester, or whatever we were operating under. And so a lot of pressure on those two tests. And that was the only time I ever met with the, with the TA was um, I was unhappy with my grade. And so I went in and had a conversation with the TA about it and it, it didn't help <laughs> my grade. But. Well, I'm trying to give the students lots of uh, low risk opportunities to test their knowledge. Mm-hmm. So starting with uh, in-class work where you actually have to do something. So you're not just sitting there in the lecture, blah, blah, blah. You, you know, you got to actually do something. 
And if you don't do it, then you didn't get the answer and you know right away. And then very frequent quizzes where they have to apply that knowledge to new, you know, new problems. And now my conversation with Alexis Pescaris. I'm super excited for today's guest. Welcome to the show, Alexis. Thank you for having me. It's so great to be here. So I'm really excited in a geeky sort of way to have this chance to talk to you about your research on a word that was new to me, agrivoltaics. I'm presuming I said it correctly. And I thought you could just start off by explaining to our listeners what agrivoltaics are. Yeah, absolutely. So when we think about solar development, there's so many different applications in which we can develop solar. You know, there's building integrated photovoltaics, residential rooftops, other innovative mixed uses. And one of these mixed use applications is known as agrivoltaics. And agrivoltaic systems combine agricultural production and solar into a single land use system. And these systems can either consist of solar integration with native pollinator plants, crop production, or with grazing animals such as sheep for vegetative maintenance. So like the sheep would just wander around the solar panel? I know panels is like a too wimpy of a word for what they are. They raise. So <laughs> the, the, um, the livestock is sort of integrated in with the, the infrastructure, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Either livestock or crop production can occur underneath the solar array. Um, and then what is the benefit of integrating the, um, this idea of, of solar with farmland use? Oh, wow. There are so many benefits. Well, the concept has become more attractive as interest in renewables has risen. The price of solar has plummeted. And there's a lot of financial pressure on small farmers. It's getting a little bit more intense. So I think the value of the agrivoltaic concept is that these systems don't take farmland out of production. Uh, In contrast, they retain the agricultural function of the land and provide farmers with a second revenue stream. And when we think about- I'm sorry to interrupt, the farmers own the solar arrays. uh, There are different business models in which these are occurring. To my knowledge, the most recurrent business model is one in which the farmer leases the land to a solar developer and receives a royalty payment and has the opportunity to continue to farm his land while receiving that second revenue stream. So that's the second revenue stream is the leasing of the land to the solar developers. It's not the selling of the power to the utility. Actually, there's both. So you can reduce the farm's electrical expenses by eliminating purchase of power from your utility. And we can increase farmer revenue by selling excess power that is generated back to the grid through net metering. I mean, this sounds like a no-brainer to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you and I both, Chelsea. There's a lot of... um, A lot of work is being done to demonstrate the viability of this concept and as time progresses and my research deepens, I've come to understand that it really comes down to local policy and community acceptance of solar development on farmland. Right. So that was going to be my next question is how is the agriculture community responding to this concept? 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, many people's initial response to agrivoltaics is opposition, opposition to farmland development and concern about compromising long-term land productivity. And I totally understand. The contention is clear. We need to increase the deployment of solar energy systems if we want to decarbonize the electricity sector, but we also need to preserve the arable land that we have here in the U.S. And these land uses are basically competing for sunlight. So how do we decide which land use to prioritize? I don't, I think it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Uh, solar energy and agriculture don't have to be mutually exclusive, mutually exclusive land uses. Right. Uh, I remember, so I'm in Maryland and I worked on a project a few years ago where it was an um, small organization that had reached out to me for some advice they were looking to appeal. So Maryland is one of those weird states. It's like super, super, super blue, right? It has super mm -hmm. authorities in the state legislature and the state Senate, a Republican governor, <laughs> and then these Republican pockets. And our Republican governor is pretty moderate as a Republican, but then the pockets in Maryland that are Republican focused tend to be very, very far right and resistant to climate action and that kind of thing. And so they wanted my some advice. And one of the things they were looking at was trying to get the agricultural community and they were skeptical, right? Because the proposition that was coming for them was either or, right? It was like, take your land, like make your farm smaller or take mm -hmm. land you're not using and build a solar farm, so to speak, on the land. But it sounds like what you're envisioning is not an either or. You can do both. Absolutely. So I think... Uh, to soften these types of concerns about land productivity and opposition to farmland development, there are a few statistics worth mentioning. Um, there's a recent study by researchers at Oregon State University, and they found that only 0.94% of U.S. farmland, so less than 1% of U.S. farmland, would be needed to satisfy 20% of electricity generation using agrivoltaic systems. Wow. Yeah, another study sh showed that converting only 1% of global cropland to agrivoltaics could satisfy global energy demand with solar energy. And this is huge, both from a land use perspective and from a renewable energy transition perspective. So what policies need to be put in place to allow this kind of um, integration to occur? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, let's take a step back and envision the U.S. government as a multi-level machine. So think about the federal level, state level, and local level. Level. When we think about agrivoltaic systems, they are energy systems. So jurisdiction over their siting is going to be an issue that occurs at the local level. So at the federal level, we have uh, federal, we have financial, financial incentives. incentives. The IRS provides an investment tax credit to those interested in developing solar. The USDA provides a loan or grant to farmers interested in investing in solar. So at the federal level, it looks good. When it comes to state level policy, I think it's, it's an interesting case study to look at the state of Massachusetts. They're the only state that I'm aware of that has an incentive program explicitly for agrivoltaic take systems. And what they're doing is using a combination of a renewable portfolio standard and a feed-in tariff. So the renewable portfolio standard supports, uh, they have a solar carve-out provision, and that is intended to drive the development of solar PV in their state. 
but more specifically is the feed and tear for agrivoltaic systems. So let's think about an agrivoltaic system that needs to be elevated. So the racking system needs to be a little bit higher to allow for some agricultural practices to happen underneath the panel, like um, using big machines or changing, seasonally changing what is grown in certain areas. So there's added costs to these systems in some instances. So what the feed-in feed tariff is doing is providing a six cent per kilowatt hour incentive to solar developers to go ahead and install these systems. So basically providing some financial assurance to developers when they go to do an agrivoltaic system that they will be compensated for this added expense. So right. state- I, I would imagine that for an industry that can be so different year to year based on weather, based on, on um, I would say like influences out beyond their control, right? Pests, mm -hmm. um, you just never know what kind of crop you're gonna get. And so you, there needs to be some level of certainty. And it sounds like that's what this six cents per kilowatt incentive would provide. Absolutely. So what we need is a combination of federal and state financial mechanisms, and then a favorable local zoning environment. So zoning, zoning restrictions and land use policy related to energy siting is probably the most important opportunity or barrier for agrivoltaic systems in the US. There's a lot of different strategies that local planners can use to allow these systems to occur. And I think that's where most efforts should be focused in terms of using policy to advance the diffusion of this technology. So you mentioned Massachusetts. I lived there for about eight years and I, I don't think of it as like the sunshine state, right? <laughs> what, and I don't even really think of it, and maybe this is wrong, as a big farming state either. I mean, I know every state has their, you know, a little niche crop here or there, but they're not Iowa or Nebraska or Kansas or the areas in the country that I think of as being kind of big agriculture. So plus the areas of the country that are big sun, right, big sunshine states, is there an effort or is there um, progress happening in any of those states that have good capacity or good um, sun coverage for solar and also kind of more traditional farming? At present, most agrotech applications are occurring with specialty crops rather than commodity crops. Gotcha. So um, I know there's a lot of research being done in Arizona, as well as Oregon and Colorado. Mm -hmm. um, commodity crop trials are, have originated um, in France, actually. So that in France, they were doing both corn and wheat underneath the panels. And this is where the idea um, originally began. No, that's interesting. And the difference between specialty crops and commodity crops makes sense. Um, so where, where are you taking your research from here? What is your next step? Well, first I need to graduate and that will happen <laughs> next week. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I am preparing to serve as a um, principal investigator on an uh, international partnership project between uh, the Keweenaw Energy Transition Lab here at Michigan Tech and uh, Sumi State University in Ukraine. Oh, if, 
if the funding comes through, we're going to work together um, to do a whole host of different things related to agrivoltaic development. My role in the project would be to lead studies in developing like local zoning ordinances and solar permissive bylaws to support local governments in developing these systems. So I see myself engaging in land use policy at the local level of government in terms of my goal is to be of service to local governments seeking to deploy solar in their area and kind of change the narrative around solar can be around where solar can be placed and provide tools for them to place solar on farmland in a way that is meaningful and that can provide valuable benefits to farmers. One thing that I just really love about everything you're saying is that, you know, some of the scary projections about the impacts of climate change in my mind um, are around food supply and um, loss of land for for farming use. So in a way, what I how I see this, or how I see maybe the the billing for how to um, promote this is that it's allowing farmers to be part of the climate solution. And, and I know from some of the federal policy work that I've done that in the past, some of the ag groups have been um, a little more hesitant to engage on policies because they were afraid of the cost impacts to the agriculture community. And but in this case, you know, the cost of climate change, you can't really measure, right? The, the mm-hmm. idea that you're going to lose your crops, the crops are no longer going to be arable in places where they've always existed or existed as long as you know, current memory, um, current record, records show. So I love this idea that farmers can continue to do their work, but make, you know, give themselves some job security and give future generations job security and food security at the same time. Absolutely. And I think it it's worth mentioning that the solar panel technology itself is evolving to allow like it. We have semi-transparent modules now that selectively utilize different light wavelengths to allow crops to receive more photosynthetically active radiation. So the, and the solar racking systems are being refined to minimize soil disruption. So we're starting to harness these symbiotic relationships between these two land uses which not only can protect certain crops from the heat and drought associated with climate change, but also provide them a valuable revenue stream because a lot of farmers are struggling otherwise, especially small scale farmers. So I think it's in both instances, if you're looking at it from like an energy system perspective or from an agricultural perspective, we can protect crops. We can, in some instances, increase yield of certain specialty crops and save money or make money in the long run. Alexis, if there are listeners who want to dive deeper um, into the research that you have done or other research related to this topic, is there a website they can look at or do you have links to reports you can send to me that I can link in our show notes? I can certainly send you all of uh, my articles. I have a few ideas of where listeners can go if they're interested in learning more. Um, there's a vast ocean of information out there. Uh, specifically, I would direct you to the National Renewable Energy Labs Inspire program. And they have an excellent website that features the latest research on agrivoltaics and other state-of-the-art resources. I would also direct livestock farmers or solar developers who are interested in getting involved in agrivoltaics to learn more about the American Solar Grazing Association. 
Their website provides different fact sheets, a contract template if you're interested in starting your own agri take business. And they also have monthly webinars, which are open to the public. Place also to check out is um, the research being done at Colorado State University's Agricultural Research Development and Education Center. They're the only researchers that I'm aware of that are testing crop productivity under panels of, the, of varying transparency. Um, this project is done in collaboration with Sandbox Solar, a developer located in Fort Collins, Colorado. And if you go check out their website, Sandbox Solar, you'll find really rich information about agrivoltaics and get a sense of what happens when truly passionate and well-intentioned people come together to bring these systems to life. We're energy optimists and climate realists. Stand with us at republicen.org. Now back to this week's episode. Well, Price, I definitely feel like I, I don't know, sometimes I have this thought that I should go back to school. I already Mm -hmm. have one master's degree, but maybe I should go get another one. And then I talk to people who are finishing their studies or like Dorian, who's a professor. And I'm like, no, I'm good. I mean, nothing against, like I have mad respect for their academic chops. And that's why I know that I just don't think I could hack it right now at this stage of my life. I have mad respect for people, it, it, for academics, for knowledge, for intellect, for higher education. Uh, my wife, who has easily outnumbered me in the house with three degrees of her own, her PhD, in, in addition to graduate and undergraduate. I listening to, to Alexis and listening to Dorian... I, at this age stage of my life, there's no way I could go back to school. I even try and sit here and, you know, want to learn another language, you know, through Rosetta Stone and stuff sometimes. And even that sometimes is like pushing the envelope. I just don't, especially going back into the classroom, I couldn't do it. So thank God we have people like Alexis and Dorian out there. Dorian obviously teaching that um, global warming class for non-science majors, which is important, right? There are people like us who aren't, um, you know, deeply steeped in the science need to have a good class. And it sounds like he tries to kind of hit all angles for why people should be supportive of climate action. And then Alexis's research, I just found so fascinating. And that's the kind of innovation we need, right? If we're going to solve climate change. Yeah. So, And congratulations to her on her graduation, because from the interview, interview, it sounded like that this was, uh, this was it. And cross our fingers for the grant that she had applied for and hopefully she gets it and sounds like a really incredible project and opportunity if everything can kind of come together for yeah i feel like we're just here in the beginning of her right i think she has a lot of good she's going to do in this world yes absolutely before we get going too much further here really quickly um want to shout out uh, several of our new members John W. in California, Cody H. in New Jersey, Paige W. in Minnesota, Jeff H. in Tennessee, and Gretchen F. in Missouri, republican.org forward slash join. That is the place where we need you if you are already not signed up as a registered republican.org. We need you, Chelsea. We sure do, and we have really seen an increase in our membership recently, so thank you if listener, if you're a listener who recently joined us. And um, if you're not, I don't know what's stopping you. Just go onto our website, join. You get to hear from us once a week in an email form. You get to hear my voice once a week. I don't know how you stand it. No, I'm kidding. Um, People are very nice to me and tell me I have a good radio voice. And I don't think I really do at all, but I appreciate 
the compliments. Your narration is outstanding. NPR is in your future. I can smell it, Miss Henderson. I smell it. <laughs> All right. Um, Spotify, iTunes, even our Republican.org website, Republican.org forward slash podcast. Many different ways, but on your smartphone, Spotify, if you're an Android user, certainly iTunes, uh, you can subscribe there. Any iPhone users, very easy to get the podcast delivered to you. A new episode delivered every single Tuesday. Just search the X, or excuse me, Eco Right Speaks right there in the app store uh, of your favorite podcast app. That is where you can get it delivered every single Tuesday right to your device. And I would just reiterate, and then we'll let these very nice people go on with their day, that you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I subscribe to them, and I rate them, and sometimes I just don't have time to li listen to them all, right? Like, this is something that I often do when I'm cooking dinner, or I'm taking a walk, or I'm in the car, and so some that are very like news oriented, if I miss it, I miss it, right? Yeah. There's really no going back. But one thing that I think is really unique about our episodes mm -hmm. is that if you miss one, you can go back and it's still relevant because we're not really talking about something that, oh, well, that's changed or that's no longer true, right? They're all, they all kind of stand on their own. And so if you're new, you can go back and listen to past episodes, and I don't think you'll feel like, oh, well, why are they talking about that? That was yesterday's news. I think you mm -hmm. would still find value. So with that pitch, I think we should let these nice people get on with their day. Fully agree. We'll do it again next week. But Chelsea, We great. sure will. Oh, my God. I have to just preview. Go for it. John Cook, Skeptical Science, the Skeptical Science app. I'm going to tell this story in next week's pod. It is amazing and everyone should also download the skeptical science app but happy to talk to the founder this afternoon don't miss it we will see you again next week chelsea take care price thanks for listening to this week's edition of the eco right speaks podcast brought to you by the team at republicen.org make sure to visit republicen.org to learn more and find out how you can be a local eco right leader